John chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1 and read down to verse 26. A well-known account, one that I'm sure um, is well-known to you, the account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And I've titled this sermon, True Worshippers, if you are wondering where this falls in the series that we're looking at. We're looking at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26 this morning. And before we do, let me again go to the Lord and acknowledge my need for him and uh, let us acknowledge our need for him to bless the ministry of his word this morning. Father, again, we bow our hearts before you. We pray that, Lord, you would um, do for us what you have promised to do to bless your people through the ministry of your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have exalted Uh, your word above all things. We thank you that it's by our receiving the implanted word that we are saved. We thank you that you have told us to lay aside all deceit and malice and hypocrisy and envy and receive with meekness the implanted word uh, that is able to save our souls and, and to drink the pure milk of the word. And we have tasted that you are gracious, Lord. We pray that you would make us to taste that again. We pray that you would give us the living waters, Lord Jesus, that you have offered to give freely to the one who comes and believes and who asks. And so, Lord Jesus, we are asking. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word in a special way. We pray these things in your name. Amen. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and John has just moved from uh, introducing us to uh, that discourse on regeneration where Nicodemus and Jesus have met, and now almost seamlessly we find uh, Jesus moving on from his meeting with this uh, religious Jewish man, Nicodemus, to this irreligious Samaritan woman at the well. And we read, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I do wonder often if you asked people that you knew what makes a true worshiper, what makes someone a, a true worshiper of God, what sort of answers you would get. I am almost positive that those answers would include, well, someone that is uh, devout in their going to worship, whatever they worship, whatever God they may worship, whatever higher power they may worship. They are committed to that, and they are looking away from themselves to something higher than them. That's a very, very common thing that people say, and and perhaps if we brought it more into the realm of the Christian church, people would say, well, it's, it's someone that's a Christian. And, and if you're a Christian, then you're a true worshiper. And it doesn't really matter where you worship or in, in many respects what that worship looks like. If, you're, if you go to church, you're a true worshiper. Maybe some people would say if you read your Bible or you pray or you like the liturgy of a church or you're involved in a small group or any other number of things that they may say makes someone a true worshiper. And while there may be some truth to some of those things, certainly not the first of those things, but while there may be some truth to some of those things as being part of what it means to be a true worshiper, uh, it is in this passage that we come face to face with what the Bible says about true worshipers, what makes a true worshiper. Here in this passage, as I noted, Jesus is interacting with an irreligious woman. He has met an unconverted woman who has been trying to satisfy herself with men. And Jesus, as I noted earlier, has moved on from his interaction with Nicodemus. He has had that great discourse about regeneration, the necessity of the new birth. He has said, unless a man or a woman is born again, he or she will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in one very real sense, what we witness in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, and then following, is what it looks like for someone to be born again in the presence of Jesus Christ in order to be made into a true worshiper. Here is a woman who has no idea what is going to happen at the well. She is not seeking God. We're going to see that quite clearly this morning. And the first thing we want to see is that a true worshiper is someone that God has sought in order to make them into a true worshiper. That's not an answer I think that you might expect to hear. I'm I'm sure if you polled a thousand people, you might never hear someone say a true worshiper is someone that God has sovereignly sought even when they weren't seeking for him and he confronted them with their sin, and he uncovered their sin, and he drew them to their, his son, and he opened their eyes, and he instructed them, and he built them up, and he, he enabled them to be a true worshiper. That's what John 4 is teaching. There is no true worship unless 
we have been sought by God. Now, it's one of these beautiful passages because there's all these nuances. Notice that at the outset, as we can consider God seeking out this woman, that we notice that we're told Jesus has left Judea and he is heading to Galilee. And John says in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you got a map out, you would, you would say that doesn't make sense. Because Samaria is not in between Judea and Galilee. It is actually quite out of the way. And so the question would arise, if you knew the geographical location, why does John tell us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria? Because God the Father was sending his Son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. One old writer so uh, wonderfully and illustriously puts it this way. It's as if with one hand, God the Father is bringing his son to the well, and with the other, he is bringing this woman that he is seeking to turn into a worshiper. Beautiful picture. There is a divine necessity. Jesus had to go through Samaria because the Father is pursuing this woman. This is a woman who has been given to Christ from all of eternity. This is a woman who God chose in the councils of eternity. This is a woman who doesn't even know what's about to happen to her. And Jesus has, is sent on a divine mission to seek and to save that which is lost. And notice that the entire passage is telling us about her lostness, her ignorance, her spiritual blindness. You know, it's very interesting. She'll get into a conversation with Jesus about worship. She'll get into a very, very in-depth conversation with Jesus about worship, while all the while knowing nothing about worship. Jesus will actually say to her, you don't know what you worship. And, and he'll say to her, if you knew who I was, you would ask me. He is, he is putting his finger on the wound of this woman's sinful life. Now, I want to say this this morning because it's so foundational. Um, unless we are uncovered by Jesus and our sin is uncovered by Jesus, we will never become true worshipers of God. It is absolutely essential that Jesus seeks us out, confronts us in our sin, and reveals himself to us. He is seeking this woman. He initiates the conversation. It's the middle of the day. This is a woman of disrepute. This is a woman who has such a bad reputation that she can't go to the well when the other women go. Every scholar, if you don't believe that, read any commentary. Every scholar knows this woman doesn't understand why she's being spoken to by Jesus. I mean, John tells us she's astonished because Jews and Samaritans don't talk to each other. She is a half-breed. She is cut off from the covenant promises of God. She has no right to the covenant privileges and promises. She is, in a very sense, the epitome of synchronized pagan religion. And she is the epitome of a soul that is lost and hopeless and desperate and empty. You know, it's this beautiful picture the woman brings the bucket. I don't know if you've ever seen this. She comes, and John sort of highlights the bucket that she brings. She comes to the well, and she comes, assumedly, every day, and she's drawing water, and we can assume she's drawing water to take to her illegitimate lover. So she's, she's not only trying to satisfy herself sinfully. She's had five husbands. Jesus uncovers her sin, but she, and she, she is a picture of, of a soul that is unsatisfied, unfulfilled, and yet laboring for others. Laboring for others. I mean, that's the picture of the human condition, isn't it? 
if we are not sought by Jesus, uncovered by Jesus, if we have not had Christ revealed to us, if we've not drank of the living waters, then what we do is spend our time trying to be satisfied by things that can never satisfy us and laboring, giving our energy for others who will constantly let us down, who will constantly use us, who don't really care. You know, my parents used to say to me, my mom especially, and one of those sweet things to remember now when I was in my years of rebellion, she used to say, Nick, your friends don't care about you. She was right. My unbelieving friends didn't really care about me. The world doesn't care about you. This woman is laboring, and she is dry, and she is barren, and she is, she is weighed down. She brings the bucket. And John makes this big deal about the bucket. She comes to the well with this bucket. She says to Jesus, you don't have a bucket. She has a bucket. And then after all of their interactions, at the end of this account, uh, it says, notice, notice this. I believe it's verse 29, 28. Notice this. After this woman has had Jesus seek her, uncover her, and reveal himself to her. Notice what he does. Notice, it says in verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. You see, that that jar is a symbol of her life. That empty water pot, trying to fill it day after day after day after day is a symbol of her life. It's a symbol of the emptiness and the spiritual deadness. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture of the inefficacy of human effort. One of the marvelous things, though, is this woman's not seeking for Jesus. She doesn't even know. You know, one old writer meditating on this passage said, you know, salvation is not only entirely unmerited, it's often unsought after. Isn't that beautiful? Remember, it was the Lord saying through Isaiah and then through Hosea, I was sought, I was, I was uh, called upon by those who didn't seek me. She's not seeking. She's just seeking to go through her life. She's going through the motions. She's not, she's oblivious to her need for the Redeemer. She knows, by the way, very interesting, she has knowledge. Even, even in this discourse, she has some knowledge. She knows that the scriptures reveal that there's a Christ. The Samaritans had the first five books of the Bible. The Jews had the whole of the Old Testament. And, and she has some knowledge. She knows about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I think when she says, our fathers worshiped here, she's alluding to the fact that the patriarchs, to whom God revealed himself, to whom he gave the covenant promises of redemption, to whom he said, I am going to give you a redeemer. I'm going to give you a seed who's going to bless the nations. She knows those things. She knows them independent of Jesus telling her, and yet she's not seeking after Christ, and she's not a true worshiper. Alistair Begg, very helpfully, says that a Christian head without a Christian heart is nothing. A head full of knowledge without a heart that knows and loves the Lord is nothing. It's nothing. It's as empty as the bucket this woman brought. And notice, though, notice the grace of God when he begins to send his son to seek after this woman, to make her a true worshiper. Notice that he comes to her and he initiates the conversation. He says to her in verse 7, give me a drink. She's astonished. She doesn't understand. She says, how are you, a Jew, asking a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. And, and notice Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue in verse 10. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I've always found it interesting that Jesus can say those are some of the most beautiful words that Jesus ever spoke. If you knew who I was, if you knew the gift of God, he is the gift of God. If you knew who I am, who speak to you, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And, and we as believers, true worshipers, love that. Oh, yes, I need the living water. Yes, Lord Jesus, give me the living waters. You have the living waters. You are the fountain of living waters. You are the infinite God. And yet she doesn't understand what he's talking about. She, she's, she can't see the spiritual truth. She's like, look, you, you, you came to the well. You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to give me living water? She's thinking on the earthly plane. By the way, um, a true worshiper is someone who has spiritual mindedness, someone that understands the spiritual mysteries of the scripture. A true worshiper is somebody who can see spiritual realities that doesn't think in earthly terms. Every other worship is earthly in nature. We talked about that last week. You know, some people like to speak about what they love about worship. They say, oh, I just love the majesty of the stained glass windows or the beauty of the liturgy. All those things are just external. They're earthly. You don't need to be spiritually minded to like light coming through colored glass. I, don't, I can't say that as clear, any clearer than that. You don't have to be spiritually minded to have a sense of aesthetic beauty. That's not a spiritual gift from God. Anyone can have those things. Um, the history of Christianity shows that most people are like this woman, thinking on the earthly terms. She, she starts to get in the discussion with Jesus after he uncovers her. You know, he moves so strategically. First, he offers the living waters to her. He comes to her. He says, I will give you the living waters. And then she shows her spiritual blindness. And so he moves on and, and he says again to her, notice, he says, everybody who drinks of this water, the earthly water, will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water I'll give him will never be thirsty. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman now says, give me this water. You think she understands? Okay, it's an inner satisfaction that God gives his people from himself in Christ. Yes, I need that. I have been spending my life trying to satisfy myself with things that can never satisfy me. Now, this, by the way, um, is why when the Lord brings an indictment against Israel and Jeremiah, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You know, some people say all sins are equal. No, they're not. Wait a minute. All sin deserves judgment. All sins are not equal. Surely actually murdering someone is worse than thinking about it. Surely we would be agreed on that. Um, and the Bible says that idolatry is the worst of all evils. Idolatrous living, idolatrous worship. There is one thing that God never tolerated. The history of the kings of Israel highlight this for us. It is synchronized worship. It is false worship. It is idolatrous worship. It is giving his glory to somebody else. It is not worshiping him in spirit and truth. It is not worshiping him according to his word. And, and you know, when God brings that indictment in the prophets, and especially in Jeremiah, he says this. 
He's, he's, he's focusing on Israel trying to worship in the flesh and, and the synchronized worship that they have and turning away from God and worshiping the way they want to worship and, and trying to live a religious life in the flesh, in, in the earthly plane. And he says, this is what the Lord says. He says, my people have committed two great evils. So I want to listen carefully. What are these two things? He says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of of living water. That's a great evil. They have forsaken me, the all-satisfying God. And they have hewned out for themselves cisterns, broken jars, that can hold no water. It's almost like John 4 is, is a, a, a historical illustration. This woman has forsaken the living God. We all have by nature. And, and she's hewned out broken cisterns that can't satisfy. And, and she doesn't understand. She seems to get it at that, that point where Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give water that wells up within people so that they never thirst. And she says, give me this water. But then notice verse 15, the second part. She says, so that I will not be thirsty or come here to draw water. She still is blind. She still doesn't get it. She cannot be a true worshiper if she doesn't get it. She needs spiritual eyes. She's still thinking, maybe Jesus can, can uh, this man I've just met, maybe he can solve the problem of me having to come here all the time. Um, and then Jesus begins that work of uncovering. Um, true worshipers are not just those who are sought by God, they're those who are uncovered by God. Notice Jesus goes right to the heart of this woman's problem in verse 16. He says, go call your husband and come here. You know, um, I wonder if you'd ever meet anybody who, if you ask the question, what is a true worshiper? They would ever say, they would ever say to you, someone that God has uncovered their sin and showed them how miserable and wretched they were. Wait a minute, I don't like that he called me a sinner. I don't like that the pastor called me a sinner. Jesus calls you a sinner. Jesus calls us sinners. Jesus must uncover if we're ever to be true worshipers. There must be the uncovering of his grace. There must be the painful work of acknowledging our depravity. There must be the difficult and often painful work of having to see how much pollution is within what we really are, to have the veneer ripped away. That has to happen. There is no true worshiper who has not undergone that. Every single person who becomes a true worshiper for whom God has sent his son to seek is one that the son uncovers. And he does it to her. Call your husband. I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you're with now is someone else's husband. And the woman is uncomfortable. You feel the uncomfortableness. One old writer, um, a Scottish writer, said that um, this woman is like an onion, that, and you, you know, as in pastoral ministry, you meet this, you just peel the onion back and you just keep peeling. And it's like peeling an onion back until you get to the center and there's nothing there. That's what this woman is. He, Jesus is just peeling back the layers. And, and she needs that to happen. And you need that to happen. And I need that to happen. By the way, that's one of the, the greatest kindnesses of God is when he uncovers our sin. Such a kindness. You know, what men hate True worshipers love. 
that Jesus came. He sought me when I was a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, he, he sought me. He interposed his precious blood. He lifted the, the, the mask of hypocrisy. He took away all the, the, the attempts that I raised to withstand his grace. All, everything I put out in front to keep him from me because that's what we do by nature. That's what we do. We say, no, God. You know, the psalmist, by the way, Psalm 14, you know where it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's a well-known verse. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In Hebrew, it actually says, the fool has said in his heart, no, God. No. By nature, we say no. And we build the walls. We build the facades. And we would be happier by nature taking the empty bucket and going back to the world and trying to fill the empty bucket. And by God's grace, Jesus comes and he doesn't let us. And he uncovers. And notice the woman is so uncomfortable. And no sooner as Jesus told her about her um, exploits, in verse 19, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. That's the understatement of the, the universe. Sir, you must be a prophet because you know a lot about me. And I've been pretty secretive. I actually think that intimates the hiding of the sinner, that they try to keep a lid on their sin, the sin that Jesus uncovers. And, and yet she, she continues to sort of uh, engage with Jesus on this on this um, uncomfortable and, and sort of um, resisting nature. And then, very interesting how this all moves. It moves so strategically to the issue of worship. Because at the end of the day, Jesus was at the well because God was seeking this woman to make her into a true worshiper. And, you know, this woman is just like so many people, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've met people like this. Any, anybody will talk about religion, by the way. If you press just a little bit, if you just put your finger in enough, they'll start talking. They'll, they'll talk all about what they think. And, and, you know, it's very common, by the way, when people get uncomfortable, they're like, well, you know, some people go to this denomination and some people like that one, but I'm more non-denominational, but I haven't really been going. They love to talk about denominationalism. That's what this woman does. Isn't that interesting? It's not new. This is not American evangelicalism. <laughs> this is human nature. She's like, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Let's talk about worship. You guys worship over there. We worship over here. You know, I'm, I'm a worshiper. You see, you, see how, you see how deceitful the human heart can be. She's actually convinced herself in the presence of Almighty God that she's a worshiper. When she's the furthest thing from a true worshiper. And Jesus so magnificently dispels all those things. And then he goes to the heart of actually revealing to her what it means for someone to be a true worshiper. I want us to focus on that in the second section here in verses 21 through 26. Jesus now begins to reveal uh, both what true worship is, what a true worshiper is, and, and our need for him in order to be true worshipers. Notice he says to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Now, the first thing you have to understand is before this point, all true worship occurred at the temple. 
The people of God marched up. They ascended the mountain, as we heard last week. They went up. They sang the Psalms of Ascent. They collectively gathered to worship. They went up to the place where God said he would manifest his glory, and they worshiped only in Jerusalem. Of all the people on the face of the earth, the only true worship was in the temple in Jerusalem. And if you were outside of Jerusalem, if you were away, you could come, you could make the pilgrimage, you could certainly join yourself with the people of God, but there was no other place where true worship could be done. But when Jesus came, the true temple came. He's the true temple. And what Jesus is saying is that no longer is worship going to be limited to a geographical, physical, earthly place. No longer is it going to be that. No longer will true worship ever be sequestered to one tiny place, ever. No longer can anyone claim that, you know, um, uh, if we don't worship in this sort of building, it's not real worship. No longer. New covenant. It's spiritual. Notice Jesus says neither on this mountain in Gerizim nor in Jerusalem, he says, will you worship the Father? And then notice what he says to her in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. Now, the very first thing that we need to know about what it means to be a true worshiper is that true worshipers have to have spiritual knowledge of who they are worshiping. A true worshiper has to know who they are worshiping. It is not sufficient to say, you know, uh, true worship is passionate worship. True worship is this or that or this or that. The first and the foundational principle, Jesus says to her, you do not know who you worship. In fact, he says you don't know what you worship. You know, there's this picture when, when the Apostle Paul is going uh, through Athens and and he sees all the idols, and it says his heart is provoked within him when he saw all the idolatry. And then he points out the, the epitome, the, the sort of the irony of idolatry. And he says in his great address at the Areopagus, he stands up and he says, he says, as I made my way through your city, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Paul's mocking idolatry. He's saying, look, in your best attempts, you've come up with, Whatever higher power you want. The unknown God. That's the heart of idolatry. Just whatever. Call him Allah. Call him Yahweh. Call him whatever you want. The unknown God. Who are we to say we're right and everybody else is wrong? God is to say who's right and everybody else is wrong. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones has this incredible, incredible statement I have to read to you. He says, um, I'm sorry, Stephen Charnock, old Puritan says, when we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God being glorified in worship, then we put God below ourselves as though he had been made for us rather than that we had been made for him. I'm going to read that again. When we believe that we should be satisfied rather than that God should be glorified in worship, we put him below ourselves as though he had been made for us rather than that we had been made for him. That's what Jesus is saying to this woman. Yes, there's satisfaction. Yes, true worshipers will be satisfied worshipers. They will have living water. They will find God to be the all-satisfying portion of their souls. But first and foremost, true worshipers know who they're worshiping. They're worshiping the triune God, the only God. You know, I marvel at how many Christians I hear when they're asked in the public sphere, 
is Jesus the only way to God? They start to, they start to vacillate. I mean, Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I'm going to deny him before my father. That he's the, the only way to the father. That, that true worship is Christological in nature. That Jesus is the way to the father. He is the way to know the father. He says he came to make the father known. This woman doesn't know who God is. She doesn't know the true God. She needs the knowledge of the most high God. God says in the Old Testament, by the way, my people die for lack of knowledge. That's foundational. True worship is knowledgeable worship. You know, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that when we sing, because singing is not worship, by the way. Most people, when you ask them about worship, they say, yeah, you know, worship's the singing part. Worship's what we do in totality in giving God glory according to his word. But, but when we sing in worship, Paul says, I will sing with understanding. I will sing with understanding. I will, I will sing knowledgeably to the God I am worshiping about the God I am worshiping. That there are no true worshipers unless they know who they're worshiping. It doesn't matter if you pray 50 times a day. If you don't know to whom you're praying, and if you're not praying to the God who reveals himself alone in Scripture, then that is not true worship. That is absolutely essential. Jesus says to her, you don't know what you worship. We worship. Salvation's from the Jews. It's revealed in Scripture. It's only revealed in Scripture. If you want to know whether you're a true worshiper, you must always ask the question, do I desire to worship God according to the Scriptures? No, by the way, it's very interesting. Um, I think, and I've, I've noticed this in conversations I've had over the years, that most people think the Bible's for me and my salvation. It is. But that that's it. That the Bible just speaks to that, that tiny but most important aspect of our lives. The Bible actually speaks just as much about how God is worshipped as about how men are redeemed. You notice in this passage how it's all tied together. Jesus is redeeming this woman in order to make her a true worshiper. It's all connected. That the true worship is, is, is brought about by regeneration, by the instructing work of Jesus, by the convicting work of Jesus uncovering us, and by him revealing the Father to us. Unless the Son reveals the Father, and unless we know how God wants to be worshipped, we'll never worship him properly. You know, by the way, there have probably been more books written in church history on, on verse 23 of this chapter than any other verse in the Bible. I am not kidding you. Jesus says in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Um, I don't think it would be profitable for us this morning to get into a debate about whether Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit whether he's speaking about men worshiping from the heart in the spirit, because there is no true worship of the heart in our spirits apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the living water that Jesus is offering to the woman. He is the fountain of living water. He is the one that comes and indwells his people and streams up within them and enables them to bow down. You know, there's this little verse, by the way, in, in Colossians, uh, where it's talking about singing corporately in worship. And it says, let us sing to the Lord with grace in our hearts, with grace in our hearts, that, that true worship is, 
is a welling up of the work of the Spirit and the grace of God in the hearts of his people, acknowledging who God is, acknowledging that he is above us, we are below him, we have been made for him. He is the only God. He is worthy of all of our praise, all of our affection, all of our adoration, all of our thanksgiving, all of our dependency, every part of our life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, take my tongue, take my silver, take my gold, take every part of me. You are the true God. And from the heart, I am engaged in worship. You know, when we come, if you have had Jesus seek you and you've had him uncover you and you've asked him for the living waters and you know who the true God is and you come to worship, the most important thing on your part is to come with a heart ready to bow down as we enter into that heavenly assembly before the throne, before the Lamb, and to give him the glory due to his name. And then notice that Jesus says it's not only worship in spirit, it's worship in truth. You know, we make a big deal about what we call the elements of worship in the Reformed Church, certainly, um, because we believe that God is the God of truth and God wants to be worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped. You know, John Piper gives that great illustration. Um, if it was your wife's birthday and, and you said, I'm going to go home and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to please my wife on her birthday and I bring six of my friends and, um, and some cheap beer and I say, hey, honey, I'm home. We're ready to celebrate your birthday your wife is probably not going to be very happy. I think that's just a universal illustration that you, if you don't get that, there's something wrong. You get that because you know what pleases your wife. Now, why would we not translate that to the living and true God is pleased to be worshipped according to truth, how he determines in his word, adding nothing to it, taking nothing from it. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, We must submit ourselves entirely to the teaching of the Bible concerning this matter. Our Lord puts it this way. He turns to the woman. He says, you do not know what you worship. We don't start with our ideas of worship. That's the danger. We don't take men's ideas of worship. Yeah, but what about this group over here? And they have this tradition. By the way, that's this. The woman, she was pointing to her tradition. You guys are here, our tradition's here. We don't start with our views of worship. That's the danger. We don't begin with other men's views of worship. Lloyd-Jones says, what the history of the church shows us so plainly is that men are always trying to add to worship. They work up a system. They borrow and they add. They borrow from the Old Testament. They borrow from world religions. They incorporate. They synchronize. All the attention is paid to externals and trappings, and the vital of the real thing is never known and never experienced at all, and we have to turn away from that. That is so vital. That is the most vital thing. You know, as I've been preparing this series, it's been good for me because I I realize I have too low a view of what worship is, even leading you. I have too low a view. I, I don't care enough. I don't care enough. I care about too many other things. Our problem is not that we have too high a view of what true worship is and and what it would mean for me to be a true worshiper. I mean, how many weeks go by that we ever ask ourselves the question, am I a true worshiper? Am I worshiping God in truth? 
I think for me, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks go by, and I may not ask myself that. We are confronted this morning with this, and notice we are confronted finally with um, the, the fact that true worshipers are satisfied. This woman finds the living water. She comes to Jesus. There's no true worship apart from coming to Jesus. When we come to Christ, we come and, and we find the living waters and we drink and we realize who he is and we realize who his father is and we realize what he has to give us. And you know, this is the beautiful thing. Um, if you ask the question, what is a true worshiper? I seriously doubt Anyone would ever say this Samaritan woman is a true worshiper. And yet when she leaves her water pot and she goes into the city and she finds the men of the city and she says, come meet a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And she has believed and she has found the living waters. She has been turned into instantly. She's been turned into a true worshiper. She didn't have to go through any kind of confirmation classes. She is a true worshiper. The second she has her eyes open to see who Jesus is. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say this in closing. As we go through the rest of this series, this uh, first quarter, we're going to talk about how God wants to be worshipped. Why do we worship him the way he wants to be worshipped? But the most important question before we answer that question is, have you been sought by Jesus? Has the Father sent the Son to seek you, experientially confronted you, uncovered your sin, showed you your need for him? Have you heard him offer you the living water, and have you asked him for that living water? If you have, you're a true worshiper. That's what a true worshiper is, someone that has found the living waters, has drank of the living waters, and whose soul is alive, who knows the living God, who longs to please him now and to worship him in spirit and truth. That's what it means to be a true worshiper. If that's never happened to you, and you know, it may not have happened to you. You know, my prayer and my desire is that Jesus would do for you what he did for this woman, that he would come and he would confront you and he would seek you and he would uncover and he would reveal himself to you and that you would know that there is, there is a stream of living water that will never run dry in the Lord Jesus. And all you got to do is ask. All you have to do is ask him, have you asked Jesus for the living waters? Do you know the gift of God and who it is who says, if you ask me, I would give you streams welling up. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for reminding us of how you sought this woman and how you drew this woman to yourself. Thank you for the ways in which In an instant, you took this woman who was satisfying herself with earthly empty things and turned her into a true worshiper. We thank you that you've done that for so many of us, Lord. We pray that you would do that for those among us who may not have ever had uh, you reveal yourself to them, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would come and you would reveal yourself and seek and save. We thank you, our God, that that is at the foundation of all true worship. We pray that we would all grow up together, longing to please you, the triune God, and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.